Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study, The First Songs of Christmas. For a few short weeks, the songs of Christmas seem to unify the world. Whether they are pop songs, traditional carols, or sacred hymns, ultimately, the inspiration for Christmas songs is tied to the celebration of the birth of Christ. Join us this December as we look at the very first Christmas songs in history. To watch any of our previous messages online or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy! Well, good morning, everybody, again. We're glad you're here on this second Sunday in Advent. We've lit two candles on our Advent wreath to remind us that we're preparing for the birth of Jesus. And we're starting a new series about the first songs of Christmas. And so I went to the internet this week, as we often do, and I said, you know, what are the best Christmas songs? And I received 373 million results in less than one second. A little overwhelming, so uh, I did with what anybody who grew up with Casey Kasem listening to the Top 100, I turned to the Billboard.com, and as you can imagine, most of the 100 best songs of Christmas are secular songs, but there was Nat King Cole's recording of O Come All You Faithful, Celine Dion's recording of O Holy Night, and a very R&B version of Silent Night by The Temptations, but The top 10 songs of Christmas are filled with secular classics that we all know and like, and I'll just name a few. Again, Nat King Cole's The Christmas Story, Bing Crosby's White Christmas, Bruce Springsteen's Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad, and not surprisingly, at number one, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Now, Except for the sacred hymns, all of those Christmas songs were written basically in the 1900s. But for this series of messages, we're going back. Back before 1818, when Silent Night was written. Uh, Back before 1744, when O Come All You Faithful was written. We're going back to the first century, to the first songs of Christmas that can be found in the Gospel of Luke. And those first songs come from chapters 1 and 2 of Luke. And thanks to the 4th century Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate, you may actually have heard or even know the names of those four songs. I'm going to give them to you in chronological order. The first one is the Magnificat, which also is known as Mary's Song. The next is the Benedictus also known as Zachariah's song. Then next is the Gloria in Excelsis Deo, known as the Angel's song. And then finally, there is the Nunc Dimittis, known as Simeon's song. Now, today we're going to start with the first song of Christmas, the Magnificat, or Mary's song. Now, before we get into Mary's song, let me give you just some background information that obviously you probably know, but I'm going I'm to err on the side of repeating it. Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus, and, and it's in chapter 1, and he writes that God sent an angel named Gabriel to a young woman named Mary, who was engaged to a man named Joseph, who was from the family line of King David. And this is what we read. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Pastor Tim Keller writes that when it comes to faith in God, a lot of people are skeptical and ask a lot of questions, whereas religious people don't ask questions, they just believe. But he continues and says that no one can accuse Mary of anything like blind faith. For instance, she doesn't say, how wonderful, an angel is speaking to me. No, the text tells us that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Keller notes, the word wondered is really not a a terribly good translation of the Greek because the Greek word means to make an audit. It's, It's an accounting term and it means to be adding things up or weighing them, pondering them, to be intensely rational. So, of course, Mary was troubled as any other normal person would be when they see an apparition. She is asking, am I really seeing an angel? Is this a hallucination? What's going on here? She does not immediately accept the message, but instead she asks, How can this be? Mary shows us that responding in faith is a whole person experience that includes our intellect. So, you know, sometimes we read ancient texts as if people in ancient times had lower IQs, right? Uh, We assume that they were superstitious, that they would believe anything, but of course, People were not less intelligent 2,000 years ago, and Mary is responding much as you or I would if an angel showed up and started talking to us. We've been trained by our culture to, to not believe in the supernatural. Mary had been trained by her culture not to believe that God could ever become a human being. So like us, she faced a barrier to believe what was happening. And yet, a combination of evidence and experience shattered those beliefs and she literally came to faith and believed what Gabriel was telling her. And that's really how faith works. She doubted, she questioned, she used her reasoning skills and she asked questions just as all of us have done who have come to faith or if you haven't come to faith, just what you need to do. So, Angel, the angel Gabriel, sees that Mary is trying to make sense of this supernatural experience, that she's troubled and and even afraid. So he says, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Then Gabriel explains the reason for this supernatural encounter, saying that because God has looked at Mary favorably, that this will happen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Let me go back to Tim Keller. He says, Mary's first reaction was measured incredulity. She said to the angel, how can this be? That's a polite way of saying, this is totally crazy. It's impossible. Mary finds this hard to believe. Nonetheless, her reaction is measured. She doesn't stop the conversation. She asks for more information. And Gabriel gives her that information. He tells her 
that the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word of God will ever fail. Mary's second reaction is acceptance. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She's not saying, it's all clear now, I get it, nor is she saying, I love this plan and I'm so excited to be a part of it. She's saying, it doesn't make sense to me, but I will follow. Some people will make no move toward Jesus at all unless it all comes together for them rationally, emotionally, and personally. But sometimes you can only do what Mary did Just submit and trust despite your fears and reservations. So as Mary moves forward, we see her exercising her faith from her heart. But it's only when she visits her cousin Elizabeth that it all comes together for her. Elizabeth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, perceives that Mary is carrying the messianic child. The knowledge and insight of Elizabeth confirms what the angel said, and this gives Mary deeper assurance of her faith through this experience. And then she burst into praise, saying what has enveloped her whole heart. So that brings us to the scriptures that contain the Magnificat, or Mary's song. And the reason I wanted to give you that background information is because I want you to understand and see that Mary is just like us. She wasn't a spiritual superhero. She was a flesh and blood human being who had the same emotions, the same questions that you and I do. She had a supernatural experience, though, that led her to sing God's praises. So let me read to you Mary's song. My soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his own arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. So, Mary starts to sing the praises of God, and she does three things. And I want us to look at those three things, and then one more. Her response, first, is words of praise. And she revels in wonder at what God has done. Listen again to what she said. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. 
So, you know, when Mary talks about her soul glorifying God and her spirit rejoicing in God, she's not talking about two different parts of herself. She doesn't mean that the soul part of me is doing this and the spirit part of me is doing that. What, what she means by that repetition is something that was normal and typical in Semitic literature. It, it was to draw an emphatic point that she's been moved to the very depths of her being. She's caught up in wonder and amazement that God has noticed her. She recognizes that the almighty God is mindful of her very simple and poor and humble estate. She sees that God is real and wants her to know him and trust him. And she grasps the significance of the moment that she's experiencing. And she pours out her emotions in worship, wondering, at what she's realized God has said to her. From personal wonder, we see that Mary sees God's sovereignty. So let me go back to the Magnificat. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. So as Mary worships God, she acknowledges his sovereign mercy and might throughout history. And as she does... She identifies a very countercultural theme. God has a special place in his heart for those like herself who are humble, who are lowly. God doesn't lift up the proud. He doesn't lift up the rulers. He doesn't lift up the rich. Oh, the proud, the rulers, and the rich may have worldly success that the world lifts up, but they're not the ones that God is mindful of. Because in their pride, on their thrones, with their riches, they don't think they need God. They act as if they are their own God. And so Mary sees God's mercy for those who fear him or respect him. Mary sees God's mighty hand outstretched to those who are humble and in need. Because they understand they need God. And God is merciful for them. From there, Mary connects the dots to the spiritual heritage that she concludes her song with. Speaking of God, she sings. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary, as she should, is taking God at his word. And so she sees his word as a promise. And therefore, she's connecting God's word through, words through the angelic messenger Gabriel to God's promise to Abraham long, long ago. When God told Mary that she was to call her son Jesus, being someone who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, she understood the Hebrew meaning of the name Jesus. It means the Lord is salvation. And she's being told to call this child the Lord is salvation. She knew God was up to something. And God confirmed that when he told her this about his son. Let me remind you. He will be great 
and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. This was the language of the prophets who spoke about the chosen one whom God would send to save his people. Tim Keller writes this. He says, she is looking down the quarters of time in this song, remembering the ancient promises to Abraham and all the times God delivered his people in the past and of all his mighty deeds. And in the midst of this, Mary realizes that God has been mindful of her humble state. The mighty one has done great things for her. God had spent centuries preparing for this day. And now God is going to save the world through a simple, poor, teenage, still unwed girl. God was keeping the ancient covenant he made to Abraham and his ancestors through the child that was growing in her womb. And she realized this. And she worshiped God with her words. So Mary's response was she worshiped God with her words, but she also had another response, a surrendered will. So let's go back and look at Mary's response to God's request. She said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. The reason I wanted to look at Mary's words first is because I wanted you to see that her decision to surrender her will to God was not simplistic obedience or blind faith. The words that she worshiped God with are steep and deep theological understanding. Mary understood. Mary knew. She, she knew God and what God was up to. And she consciously decided, I will surrender my will and serve him. And when she did that, she let go of the view of what her future looked like in her mind. And she embraced God's view of her future. Now think about this. She was a teenager and I'm sure she dreamed about her future, what it would be like to marry her fiance, Joseph, what their home would look like, what their family would look like, what their kids would, be look, like, would look like, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Surrendering her will to God's will meant letting go of those dreams. But accepting God's dream and plan for her life. And she certainly thought about the cost of surrendering to God's will. When Joseph learns that she's pregnant, will he believe that this child is from God or that she's been unfaithful? When people put together the, the date of their wedding and the date of Jesus' birth, will people think that she's been unfaithful to Joseph or that they were committing adultery beforehand? And what about her child? Who will be known as illegitimate for the rest of his life? She knew by accepting God's will that she may live her life in disgrace. And yet she said, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. She worshiped God by accepting his will for her life. Earlier 
I said that I wanted you to see that Mary's just like you and me, just like us. She wasn't a spiritual superhero. She was a flesh and blood human being. I said that because I want you to understand that her response was not something super. It was just human. And it's a response that we can have and that we should have to God. So what is your response? Do you revel and wonder at what God has done for us? Do you see God's sovereignty in your lives? Do you see the covenant that God made long ago to save his people being enacted in your own life? If you see all that, then your response should be like Mary's. She worshiped God with her words and with her will. Now, to worship God with your words and with your will genuinely and sincerely means that you will have to surrender your will for God's will. And yes, it will be challenging, and at times it will be hard, but don't be overwhelmed. It's important for us to realize. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to accept and understand that, that God has blessed us in our day and age with resources that Mary knew nothing about. She, she knew about the Spirit of God, but the Holy Spirit hadn't been poured out into followers of Jesus at that time. And so you and I, when we came to faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came to, to live with us and in us, to be our teacher, to be our guide, be our comforter. Mary didn't have that. Mary didn't have the, the blessing of, of an individual copy or multiple copies and electronic copies of God's word to hear God speak to us words of mercy and comfort and, yes, of challenge. And Mary didn't have a community of faith, uh, the body of Christ, the church, brothers and sisters who can encourage us, who can come around us in our time of grief, who can support us, who can celebrate our victories, who can help us take the mission of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. She didn't have all of that. She didn't have those things to build her up and to encourage her to do the will of God and live in his dream for her. But we do. In his second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes this. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things that, we cannot, that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. I want to close with a final quote from Tim Keller. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. Keller writes, In some mysterious way, troubles 
and suffering refine us like gold and turn us inwardly and spiritually into something beautiful and great. Look at Mary herself. This girl, no more than 15, near the bottom of the social ladder, knew that if she surrendered to God, she would go even lower. Yet she did so willingly and went through the agony of watching her son tortured and crucified. Think of all the darkness she embraced when she said, I am the Lord's servant. Yet look, look at Mary. Today, most people in the world know who Mary is. Because she humbled herself and became a servant, she became one of the great people in history. So surrender to the Lord and don't underestimate what he can do in you and through you if you put yourself in his hands. As the Apostle Paul wrote, if we give ourselves completely to him, he will do great things in our lives. So what does it look like for you and me to surrender our will to God? It looks like asking God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do through me? And allowing, allowing God to continue to speak through the Bible and through the Holy Spirit, giving actual attention to what we read and what we hear and what we experience and following him faithfully. So in this season, as we prepare for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, I want to encourage you to look at Mary, not a spiritual superhero, just a a flesh and blood human being like you and me, who shows us an example of what it looks like to say, I am the Lord's servant and following him faithfully. She never got the world's acclaim, but it didn't matter. She did what God wanted. And through her obedience, God changed the world. Through our obedience, God will change the world. Let me close with prayer. God, we thank you for showing us a world changer like Mary. Just a normal flesh and blood human being who said, I am the Lord's servant. And Lord, today we want to say to you that we are your servant. Do what you want to do in us and through us. Use us for your glory. We know, Lord, that you will work through us if we allow it to happen. So we pray for the strength to say yes each and every day and give you the glory and the reins to the wills of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.